Tonight we're going to be talking about going with the flow, resilience, the ability to adapt to unforeseen setbacks and changes in life. And um, we'll be covering a lot of different ground and it will lead into a meditation which will hopefully cultivate a greater degree of uh, capability to withstand the unforeseen and to also adapt in life with confidence. So the bilateral brain, which means the brain has two hemispheres, developed over the course of evolution uh, so that each, uh, the left and right brain, fulfill different necessary functions. Uh, at first, when during the split brain work of Roger Sperry in the early 60s, there was this rush of excitement and real simplification of what the findings were. But we now today, uh, some 50, 60 years later, can with confidence note that the right brain is responsible for having this very broad non-focused attention, sort of like a floodlight in the theater. And what it does in the background of awareness is it looks for threats. It looks for uh, any cues of both safety, where to achieve it, and danger. Uh, danger in our species doesn't only mean something that could attack us or kill us, Danger can also mean anything that changes our tribal status. Someone looking at us askance, someone sending us uh, negative facial expressions and so forth. So right brain works largely in the background of attention. It's mostly non-conscious in our adult life. It uh, has limited language faculties. It's, it is responsible, though, for those metaphors we use in poetry and songs that are resistant to logical explanation. So it's very open-ended. Um, your right brain views us all as interdependent, and it's most responsible for activating the emotional cues that underlie our, our behaviors and our actions. Meanwhile, your left brain, that's the one that's largely conscious, and we know that uh, Broca and Wernicke's regions are largely responsible for the inner chatter, the thinking that's going on. Uh, and there's a couple of primary responsibilities that the left brain has. The first is to select, it's the hemisphere that has very fixated, focused, narrow attention. It focuses on an object or on a goal that it wants to acquire or achieve. And it keeps that goal in mind and it uh, represents the world in words and language. It is um, the part of the brain that activates largely dopamine. Talk a little bit more about that. But in the left hemisphere, Having a plan which creates a sense of co coherence in, amidst the chaos of sensations and experience in our life, having plans, having goals, having things we're working towards, not only 
allows the left hemisphere to make sense of our life in a way that creates the feeling of control, but it activates an area in the brain called the ventral tegmental region. You don't need to know that. It's part of the striatum, but it's what activates dopamine. Dopamine is important to know what it is. Dopamine is responsible for all of the addictions and cravings we have. Dopamine is essentially the reward neurotransmitter. And when we have a plan, when we have a scheme, when we have a goal we're working towards, not only does it create a a pleasing sense of order to life, but it actually activates a great deal of pleasure. And that pleasure can have a number of purposes. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Neuropsychologists have noted that actually drug addicts get more dopamine, more sense of reward and excitement and pleasure when they are in the hunt for drugs than when they actually use the drugs. Even though the drugs are loaded with exogenous, um, uh, you know, coke or uh, crystal meth or heroin are loaded with exogenous substances uh, that break the blood-brain barrier and create different moods and states, still, the brain is most excited, pleased, happy, electric when we are in the hunt or on the move towards an end. Having a plan is a way many of us also repress unresolved emotional issues that create a degree of pain. So very often when we experience a relational setback, of some kind, a breakup and, uh, or a disappointment, burying ourselves in work or in a project becomes a way we can repress the attachment wounds associated with uh, the relational disappointment. So many of us over time rely on having an ongoing project in our life as a way to continuously suppress, push down, and repress, keep down unresolved emotional wounds stemming from earliest childhood memories. And as the Buddha noted in Diddy Upadana, having a plan, something that we're a project, that we're working on, something that we are aiming towards, uh, is exceedingly addictive, and it ultimately, invariably, ends in dukkha. Uh, in the, not just in Buddhism and in, and in psychology uh, has this uh, an important topic, but in, of all places, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was written by a guy named Bill Wilson in the 1930s, uh, he writes of the importance of the role that having a plan plays in maintaining addiction and how addictive it is. He wrote, and this is a famous passage, each person is like an actor who, or each addict is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, forever trying to arrange the lights, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If only people would do as he wished, the show would go great. 
But what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more, becomes even more demanding. Yet still the play does not suit him. He is sure now other people are to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying, the victim of the delusion that the world can be managed. And so what Wilson is pointing here, besides his gendered writing, everything in the big book is he or him, but he's pointing to this role that having a this ongoing scheme plays in the addictive mindset. And of course, uh, we see that not only in various forms of substance addiction, but even in OCD disorders, looking for a sense of control that repress early attachment wounds by having routines, rituals, plans, etc. So goals and plans, if they mask right hemispheric emotional wounds and fears and insecurity, when plans go awry, a bunch of bad shit happens to us. One, when we have a desire to move, to change a career, to start a business, to uh, have a relationship work, and when those plans come undone, the first thing we experience is plummeting dopamine because the ventral tagmental stops producing it, and when we have low dopamine, we begin to experience a deficit of pleasure and reward in our life. That's what creates brain fog, an inability to get out of bed, to feel motivated, depression. But it doesn't only end in there. When our plans go awry, we can also experience the return of the repressed, because whatever the plan or goal has been successfully keeping out of conscious or compartmentalizing, now those old wounds, those feelings of loneliness, disconnection, lack of meaning, lack of being important to other people, we start to feel them very strongly. And so we're hit with essentially a double whammy. We're hit with feelings of lack of pleasure and reward, as well as the anxiety that it ratchets up whenever repressed emotions start to arise. And then addictions tend to spike even more. So the core of the Buddha's awakening uh, was noting how unforeseeable, inconvenient, and unpredictable life is. And the Buddha extolled flexibility. His life was one of living a very, very, at first, in the first 28 years of his life, living a very controlled, predictable, reliable existence. He was uh, wealthy. He lived in very comfortable abodes. Uh, it said he had three houses, that his family was very wealthy, and he really didn't need to do very much to have a life that would play out according to the plan of his father, Suddhartha. So um, when the Buddha left his family and became a mendicant, uh, essentially a wandering monk, he no longer had any fixed abode, no 
place to live. Nothing would go as planned. And he would stay wherever people would ask. And if he wasn't asked, he would sleep out in the wild. And many of those original uh, experiences of the Buddha are still upheld in Theravadan monks today and nuns who uh, part of their training is to be willing to move at a moment's notice wherever the head monk or head nun decides they will go and teach. So if you were a renunciate, you could be studying in a very comfortable monastery and then the abbot would say to you, well, you're going to now go to Sri Lanka tomorrow and teach in a rural village where nobody speaks the same language as you, and you would have to be able to adapt to that. So there's a huge emphasis on relinquishing plans, not the, the, the development of a kind of what the Buddha called sada, which is confidence. We'll talk a little bit more about that. In the Water Snake Sutta, which is one of the most important teachings of the Buddha, uh, he talks about somebody who's built a raft to cross over um, one river after another to get to safe shores. But after a while, this person now winds up at a stretch of dry land, and the raft is no longer useful. And the Buddha asks his followers, suppose this person thinks, well, this raft has been so useful to me, probably I should carry it around on my back. No. The Buddha notes, this would not be using the raft correctly. Dependency on plans leads to the arising of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Friends, whatever isn't yours, let go of it. Letting go is for your long-term welfare and happiness. So again, we're having this theme of extolling more, even more than uh, creating a sense of direction in life. The Buddha is extolling the ability to bounce back or to adapt to life as it presents itself. And this is summed up in sada, our confidence. Now, in early Buddhism, sada confidence is actually developed in a kind of negative way. I wouldn't actually recommend it. I will tell you what it is. But we're going to actually choose a much softer, contemporary way. In early Buddhism, sada confidence was based on, through meditation, seeing and experiencing firsthand how all mental states and all feelings and all thoughts and all physiological states of being are unreliable and unpredictable. And there's this dark night of the soul moment where we realize through ongoing meditation that no matter whatever it is we're clinging on to for happiness or for a sense of purpose, it doesn't create the happiness, the lasting happiness that we're seeking. And we finally get to this place where we give up clinging to anything. And in that vast renunciation, we let go and experience this joy of essentially being willing to do anything, go anywhere and adapt to anything at a moment's notice. Now, I, if you can do that, you are better Buddhist than I am. <laughs> Congratulations. That's great. 
but I like knowing that, you know, there are certain things in my life that are somewhat consistent, but as well, I know that there are many, much of my life is outside of my control, but I prefer to get a sense of confidence or uh, ability to withstand and go with change in a gentler way, and that's what I'm going to be teaching tonight. So in psychology, and in the theories that underpin therapeutic endeavor, uh, the work I do in counseling, it's very resilience, which is the ability to go with the flow, to withstand the unforeseen, to bounce back from setbacks. Resilience is an exceedingly important topic. It's virtually in every major psychological theory today. There's books on it. Why is that? Well, number one, virtually everybody who ever enters the therapeutic encounter with somebody in counseling or therapy comes to it because something has gone fucking awry in their life or the plans aren't working out or they're disappointed and they're trying to figure out a way to uh, essentially uh, not only withstand the setbacks but to develop a new wholesome uh, way forward that will not once again lead to disappointment or setback. So resilience, the capability to bounce back or respond to disappointments is key. And we know from the not only the clinical research, but all the theorists that have made uh, a big mark on today's psychological theory that um, <coughs> This capability to withstand disappointing events and go with whatever new presents itself is actually developed in what's called our attachment history. What's our attachment history? Our attachment history are the experiences or relationships that were vital to our development as human beings, where we relied on other people to either take care of us or help us prosper or help us understand life. So again, our ability to bounce back, to go with the flow, to be resilient is entirely based on our history of relationships, especially the early relationships in childhood, the key relationships in life where we relied on people to be there to help us process wounding experiences to help us restore confidence and so forth. If we got enough experiences of care and support and understanding and reassurance, especially in childhood, excuse me, but also later on in life in our peer relationships, our relationships with teachers and in our romantic relationships, then that creates something called object constancy. Now, what the fuck is that? I know I'm like leading you down this long, but it'll pay off. Object <laughs> constancy is the ability to have a mental impression or a feeling that was there when we were with helpful, caring people. Eventually, if we have a secure base or a sense of object constancy, even if we're not with somebody who's loving and supportive, we feel as if 
that person or those people are there. And that's what creates resilience and the ability to go with the flow. We have to feel the sense that there are people who care about us, who will help us uh, work through our negative experiences, who will be there to help us uh, disclose our affects, our emotions, and will then help us patch back together with support a new direction. And we'll also normalize our setbacks. In other words, say, it's not your fault. This happens to everyone. This is not about you. This is normal that people's plans go awry. We need the, the sense that there will be that kind of support there in our life. This object constancy, the feeling that someone's there, is visible in childhood. When a child is as early as one and a half years old, when babies, infants go through the strange test, infants that have object constancy, who had secure parenting with caring <laughs> mothers or fathers that created a sense of reliable soothing, those infants, when the mother leaves the room and leaves the infant with a stranger, that infant will cry for a little while, but then it will soothe itself and turn towards the stranger and go with the flow. In essence, it will adapt and turn towards the stranger and will connect and bond, and it will stay with the stranger until the mother returns to the room. That's at about one out of every two babies. The other half, which are the ones I spend my entire life with, because <laughs> uh, that's what I do, and actually I love people who have insecure, because I had, uh, with my father, largely insecure attachment. So the, ch the infants with insecure attachment they will either just go to themselves and play and, and not respond to the loss. They will repress their emotions and will just become self-sufficient uh, and distract themselves from the stranger. But more likely, they will stand by the door, scream, cry, protest until the mother re returns. They will not turn towards the stranger. So we see as early as one and a half, and these, by the way, patterns stay with many people for their entire lifetimes. People with secure attachment explore, have greater resilience, bounce back, and this is shown in all adult forms of therapy, the work of Omri Gilead, uh, uh, Shaver, Mario McEwlinser, and so forth. All the clinical psychologists show that people who have secure attachment have greater resilience, greater ability to uh, essentially uh, adapt after really disappointing events in their life. So how do we develop this, these feelings of uh, the kind of feelings that will create resilience? Well, as Wallen, a, a very, Dave, David Wallen, a very important psychologist notes, the, um, the feeling of resilience is largely in the body. When a child has secure attachment and is capable of developing resilience, it has a greater, more confident physiological state even after setbacks. Its body doesn't shrink. 
into the startle state, to the, the protective, I'm alone, I'm vulnerable. The child that doesn't have a secure base starts this process of disconnecting from other people, eye glances, starts looking down, shoulders, hunches, stomach, tightens, because they're now in the sympathetic nervous system state. They're now in a pure survival state, and they don't trust other people. They don't look for support. They're in a vulnerable state. So it's exceedingly important that when we've had setbacks in our life, or when we need to change direction, that one, we are capable of disarming whether we're in the dorsal dive of depression or the HBA access of hypervigilance and stress and anxiety to be able to self-soothe and return our body to a state of homeostasis. The easiest way to do that is manipulating your breath. Long exhalations activate the parasympathetic nervous system, release acetylcholine, and relax your body back into a greater state of security. Softening your belly, opening up the chest, sometimes putting a hand on the chest, all of those activate parasympathetic states. Slowing down, doing things slower after we've had a uh, relational disappointment or a disappointment in work, projects, career, any big plans. The slower you move, that's called titrating, the less you will put yourself under chronic stress. Two, it's of course exceedingly important, as the Buddha noted in Kalyanamita, to connect with friends who are non-judgmental and disclose whatever it is we're feeling. Human beings are emotionally co-regulating. The more we talk about experiences, not by narrating what happened blow by blow, but literally talk about the disappointment, the confusion, the overwhelm, whatever we're feeling, open it up to others and allow them through nonverbal cues to restore us back to a state of calm. And then third, what we're going to be doing as well in this meditation, as well as the self-soothing, the work of Brown and Elliot and others show that visualizations of caring figures can actually activate a greater degree of resilience as well. There's two meditations that they developed in their book that are of interest. One's called The Ideal Parent, but we're going to today do the self-esteem building practice because part of building one's sense of self-esteem is it also builds a greater sense of confidence and ability to essentially uh, withstand disappointment in life. The more you have a sense of inner esteem, inner strength, the more you'll be able to uh, respond rather than react when life doesn't go the way we want. So, <laughs> I hope something in there was interesting. That's the best I can do. Uh, tomorrow, I think, I, not tomorrow, uh, next week I'll be doing probably a talk on developing attention, maintaining, enhancing our attention. Maybe that'll be my talk. But to, for today, let's develop resilience, shall we? The ability to go with the flow. Who wants to do that? Well, you don't have a choice. So... <laughs>
just most important is just to find a really comfortable balanced position. We want you to enjoy your practice. We want you to feel good in your practice. So don't try to think your way into a good posture. Allow your body to feel its way. You're using your right brain. Your left brain doesn't have a clue what's a good relaxing posture. Your right brain does, but it can't tell you. It has to just feel its way. So generally, if we can keep our head nicely balanced over the pelvis, that's a good idea. But what's most important, if you're going to put any effort in, just gently lift your chin up a little like you're looking at a tall building. And we're doing that because we don't want the head to slouch in front of the chest. Slouching is pretty much the number one enemy in not only developing any inner peace, it also creates so much physiological distress from the neck down. And tends to undo all of the interoception, which is your ability to connect with your body. When your head's in a nice alignment with your body, it's easier to extend your consciousness down into your body. And that's very key to this work. So we'll take a few breaths, and these breaths are all about the self-soothing that can help us restore a sense of calm after we've had disappointing news or events in our life. So take a really full, complete in-breath through the nose, and while you do so, squinch the muscles in the face, really like pinching the nose, furrowing the brow, clenching the jaw, making an ugly pinched face, and then as you breathe out slowly through the mouth, soften all of the muscles in the face. Very often in yoga practice before the very last pose, there's this clenching and release practice for doing that. And what we've just done is relax the cranial muscles, which are part of the vagal nervous cluster. Important to address those to achieve calm. And now let's take another full in-breath through the nose and lift your shoulders up like you're trying to reach the ceiling with them. Hold them really awkwardly up, and then as you start to breathe out slowly through the mouth, rotate the shoulders back and drop them so that your arms are now heavy, lifeless limbs from your torso, and the shoulders are both back and dropped, which opens up your chest. When you have your chest open, it's a posture that sends a message up 
to the subcortical regions of your brain saying you're safe, that you're not under threat. So it's great to keep the chest open, the muscles in the face relaxed. Try to extend the corners of your mouth. Don't try to force a smile, but just keep the mouth very flat and wide. And then for the third breath, that's full. Imagine that your belly is pulling the breath, so it's extending and becoming distended and bloating out, creating this big round belly. And then as you breathe out slowly through the mouth, softening the belly, so the out-breath that's long and very smooth is associated with releasing any tension or awkwardness in the front of the body, the chest and the abdomen are the key clusters of the vagal vagus nerve highway, which is so key in establishing resilience, security, well-being, all in the front of the body. So for a while, let's just practice a very self-soothing breathing, which emphasizes making the exhalation as long, subtle, smooth. If it's helpful for you to count, count the length of your in-breath, like one, two, three, and then when you count the length of the out-breath, try to reach a number that's double the inhalation. So if you count to three in the inhalation, obviously you're aiming to reach six on the exhalation. If that's too awkward, too long, don't worry about it. Just try to make the out-breath smooth and keep an awareness of the belly, belly breathing is very, very soothing. So feel the belly slightly expand on the in-breath and then that long, gradual relaxation of all the muscles on the exhalation. Now that we've gotten the body in a good place, we want to cultivate in the mind that state of, it's ever so rare in life where you really land in an experience without any desire to go anywhere, do anything. You don't want to develop any new plans or it's the first day of your vacation. 
you've reached your destination and you put down all your bags, all of the unresolved issues from back home are very distant. And you just really want to land in your own body, which means you don't want your thoughts to be racing ahead to the next thing to do. You just want to really come to a full stop. No more momentum. No more constantly marching, pushing through life. Just coming to a complete restful stop. So you can do that by sometimes visualizing a place where you give yourself permission to completely let go. Maybe a beach or a place in the country, a park. Visualize such a place if that's helpful. And so we'll just sit here breathing with nothing to do, nowhere to go, just allowing life to unfold.
I'm still okay if the mind wanders, just each time it wanders and you become aware of it. Just feel really grateful that you're developing that awareness that can disconnect from your thoughts and can come back to your experience. Every time you wake up from a thought or a memory or a, something the mind has created, you're bringing your awareness back home to the body you're ingraining neurally new pathways that support mindfulness awareness presence attentiveness so even when you drift away it's an opportunity to cultivate all the rewards of practice. So at this point, I invite you to allow your awareness of the breath to recede a little bit. And whenever you want, you can return to it. It's what's known as an anchor. It's something you can use to ground your awareness in the present. 
But for the next part of the meditation, where we build a sense of resilience, I'd like you first to bring to mind any situation, plan, goal that you've been hoping to rely on that may not be working out. It may not be bearing fruit or may require to be put aside for a while, even though it's very difficult, perhaps. If nothing comes to mind, that's okay. But if anything does come to mind, anything that we've wanted, perhaps a person or a situation or a goal that we've been hoping to integrate into our life or move towards that hasn't been paying off or that is requiring or presenting more and more obstacles. Just bring that to mind. Just know what that is. We'll return to it later. You can have a name for it or an image. A person's name or a place or something. But now what I'd like you to do is bring to mind an altogether happier image. I'd like you to bring to mind some experience in your life where you felt a benefit to others, that you've helped other people. If nothing comes to mind, just visualize with your imagination something that you'd like to do that would be helpful. If possible, visualizing either real or imagined individuals looking at you with a sense of appreciation acknowledgement an endeavor where you're being a benefit to others and if it feels right take a your right hand and place it on your heart center or your left if that's more appropriate and just feel the warmth of your hand on your chest and then that full in-breath, and as you breathe out, once again, pulling the shoulders back, opening up the chest, and keeping that image of acknowledgement. If other images come to mind where you either aspire to be a benefit or have been a benefit, just hold those images in your mind and create that sense of openness and the Buddha called sada, confidence in the body, a sense of stability. Just feel the merit, the kindness, the capacity to respond beneficially to others that you have.
Just feel this state. And lastly, we're, while we're in this physiological somatic state of confidence, acknowledging our highest sense of self, bring back to mind if there was a situation that you reflected on previously that's not going well. Just bring that to mind. And in your own words, just say, now, to the extent I can, I'm willing to put you aside for the time being and move towards endeavors where I feel a greater sense of purpose and security in my life, where people will be more reliable, where I feel or sense a greater degree of meaning or purpose. Knowing that putting aside something doesn't mean we're closing the door to it for good. We're just taking it out of the forefront of our plans or attention where it's creating all the stress. Just opening willingness to turn towards new endeavors, new possibilities. It all starts from this body. It all starts from this breath. <coughs> and then when you're ready, you can drop your hand back down if you like, if you take another rewarding breath and let go of any image or <coughs> reflections, just come back to a very relaxed state. And in a moment I'm going to ring the bell and when you hear the sound, just take your time, try to bring with you into the awareness where your eyes are open and you are flooded with all the visuals, try not to let your awareness of the body fall into the background. Try to bring, mindfulness means to bring your sense of your body, your feelings with you wherever you go. So try to bring with you any feelings that you've connected with in this practice. Thank you for your practice. I hope something tonight was of benefit so far. In a moment, we'll go to questions. Um, anything you'd like me to talk about or anything you'd like to share about. And then 
when it's time to leave, remember to help clean up the room and throw 10 bucks in the basket if you can. If you can't afford that, just give what you can. If you don't have cash, uh, Venmo Dharma Punks with an XNYC. So that's Dharma Punks NYC, or just go to the Dharma Punks NYC site. There's a PayPal button there. Actually.